This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Science Friction. It is the show exploring science and culture with Extra Spice. Natasha Mitchell back with you. And today we are looking for fakes. I was utterly disgusted. I was surprised. You know, I I never had actually expected this to happen. And there's an irony here because and half of my work is about how meaning and nuance and, and history gets uh, mistranslated once it gets on the internet and circulates in different ways. And here it was happening to my very own work. So this story starts with a mm-hmm. picture and you first notice it on the cover of a textbook. So the book is a sort of medieval encyclopedia and it's been translated recently into English by my colleague Elias Mohanna. This is Dr. Nir Shafir. He's an historian from the University of California, San Diego. His thing is the culture and science of the Ottoman Empire, that vast state which controlled over 600 years much of Southeast Europe, Western Asia and North Africa up until the 20th century. It was centred around Istanbul. And on the cover of it is two men looking through telescopes one of them is pointing up at the night sky. So here you have this kind of traditional vision of men observing the cosmos through telescopes. And they're looking across a rich landscape from a kind of balcony. They're on some sort of tower, yeah. And there's a moon above them, so it's the night sky. Yeah, and it's drawn in this sort of uh, traditional Persian miniature style. What Nir's describing is a scene depicting two turbaned astronomers at work sometime in the medieval era of the Middle East. Persian miniatures are these small, beautiful paintings of historical scenes, famous for their intricate detail. And modern reproductions of them are sold in the busy markets of Istanbul to tourists. And in those, there seems to be an obsession with science. So some of these scenes are images that might be found in actual manuscripts. For instance, an image of a circulatory system in the human body. People looking through a telescope, people treating a toothache, a dentist operating on someone, a surgeon cutting open a a patient. Some of them are sexual, but they're often quite commonly linked to science. Which is kind of curious because here's what you find if you actually look at the historical record. I've looked through thousands of manuscripts myself. Out of every 1,000 or every 2,000, I find one with some illustration in it. And of those, only a tiny fraction are actually depictions of science, right? And there's a controversial reason for why the story of Islamic science is being sold to tourists in this way. And I'll get back to that. But what about that miniature of the two astronomers? Well, Nir was about to use the book it was on the cover of for a university course he teaches called Science and Islam. And something about it just didn't ring true. Well, one is the telescope itself, right? The telescope is something that was developed by Galileo and others uh, in the 17th century. We have a lot of evidence of people using telescopes in the 18th century in the Middle East, but I've never come across a picture of someone using it. And looking more closely again at the picture, Nir noticed something else was odd. The style was a bit off, the colours were too bright, Uh, the pigments were off, the way that this thing was drawn was not quite correct. 
So what I looked for is the full picture, the one that wasn't cropped. And then once I saw that, two more figures emerged. And here you have another man looking through a telescope. And then at the bottom of the picture, you have a man with his hand on the globe and writing in a book with a quill. And that quill set alarm bells off for Nia Shavir. This for me was the little moment in which mm. I realized this is a fake because people in the Middle East didn't write with quills. They used to write with reed pens. Okay, that sounds like a very subtle detail that only an historian's eye could pick up or be concerned about. And you might be thinking, like, so what? But this was a scholarly text, not the place for fakes. And its label said it was a genuine miniature housed in the Istanbul University Library. So what we have here is a modern-day forgery masquerading as a medieval illustration, as Nia describes it, and the tourist markets are full of these. They're very clearly fakes. So, you know, this isn't something that's fooled all sorts of experts here. But what happens is when they move onto the internet, and how do they get onto the internet? They get onto the internet through these stock photo agencies. Uh, stock photo agencies are the ones selling pictures to news sites to books all sorts of anytime we need an image and so there was this one particular photographer by the name of Gianni Daliorti who is apparently pretty famous I found out for photographing pictures in museums and he according to the taglines in these stock photo agencies had photographed a large number of these uh, fake miniatures and said that they were in the Istanbul University library and that claim prompted Nia to dig even further. Now, I went to, I often do research in that library, and I went there and I asked the, the Rare Books collection if they have any of these pictures and said no. And not only that, they don't take any new, they don't keep collecting new manuscripts. So there's no way that these pieces ever entered their collection. And so that's when I realized that these, what essentially were tourist pieces. And that's okay, but... Once they're on the internet, it's actually quite hard to tell exactly if they're real or not, especially if you're just looking at the image. So my colleagues have been using them unintentionally on in their presentations. They've used them on the covers of their conference booklets. They circulate, and especially through the internet and through Facebook and Instagram, they go even further. And that's when fakes get represented as truth with potentially nasty consequences, as you'll hear. But here's another story of an historical image that's spread like a virus, although in this case it wasn't a virus, it was the plague. Plague is actually caused by a bacteria that is flea-borne for the most part, might also be transmitted by lice. The whole story that we've heard quite a bit about the rat flea is true, mm. except that those fleas are also carried on about 200 other different animals as well, so it really isn't just the rat. So let's now transport ourselves back to the 14th century and imagine this, 60%, up to 60% of the population across Europe, the Middle East and North Africa was wiped out. There are images of people carrying coffins, a lot of people carrying a lot of coffins mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, that's probably one of the most iconic images of the plague. There are images of people lying dead and or dying on the streets. 
lot of images of people praying with perhaps the Virgin Mary around them or a variety of saints. So the whole connection to sort of a spiritual salvation, either asking for it or giving thanks for it after the fact for having survived. Laurie Jones, she's an international development worker turned historian at the University of Ottawa and she's our second sleuth on science friction today. Her passion, it's gory, is medieval medicine and the Black Death was one of the goriest diseases of all. And in the bubonic version of the plague, you end up with buboes, which are large swellings about the size of an egg under the armpits, um, on the side of the neck or in the groin which eventually um, pus could come out of. Apparently the stench from the people's bodies that were almost rotting from the inside out was quite horrific. A truly Mm -hmm. awful way of dying. Yes. You know, sadly, the bubonic plague still occurs in parts of the world today. But one picture from the medieval era has come to be reproduced so many times that it's almost become the iconic image of the Black Death. It got picked up by publications, by scholarly journals, by documentaries, museums, tourist pamphlets, you name it. This picture is everywhere. And because most of them then credit it back to the British Library, everybody believes that that's what it is. This is an image that is in a encyclopedia that was written around 1365 by a, a clerk in London named James La Palmer, and it's heavily illustrated. And this one image is of a bunch of clerics, so people in the church, perhaps monks, being instructed by their bishop. The men are all covered in spots. The text around the image talks about the fact that this is a bishop giving instruction to clerics as to what they're supposed to do or what rights and benefits they have if they fall ill while they're in their position. And should they be thrown out of the church or not? Exactly. And whether if they're too sick to work, are they allowed to get the income that they would normally get or do they need to hire somebody to take their place? Okay, sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? A very likely 14th century scenario. But none of that context was being distributed with the image as it spread across the internet. And when historians saw it being described as a group of plague-infected monks with a priest, they smelled a rat. Not a plague-infected flea on a rat, just a rat. It didn't quite seem right because people with the plague first of all, don't have those kind of spots that we're aware of, and also probably wouldn't be standing up because once you have the plague, you're quite ill and you'd probably be lying down and dying. There were a whole lot of things that seemed to be wrong once historians like yourself started digging. Yes, exactly. So they're certainly not dressed like monks and the priest doesn't look like what a priest would have been wearing either. So so you have clothing issues, you have sort of disease depiction issues that none of it quite lined up. And in fact, spotted skin tended to mean something else in medieval iconography. It did, it meant leprosy. So it wasn't the bubonic plague at all. And if you read the original manuscript, it was very clear that the clerics had leprosy, 
not the plague. So Laurie and her medieval history colleagues went hunting down the source of the error and it led them to no less than the esteemed British Library where the original was held. And then it was given to somebody to create a caption for it on the online version and that person took the image and called it the plague. And what happened next? Because what ha- this image effectively spread like the plague. And then it got picked up by Wikipedia in English and every other language that has Wikipedia black death pages. And then what happens is people go online and they're looking for images and they pick up this image either from the British Library or from Wikipedia that says, here's an image of the black death. And there we go. This now is an image of the plague. And it's from the British Library, so you have to believe it. And that's part of the problem, is that the people who are doing the captionings for these online sites might not have any direct knowledge of what the image is actually about. And now at least three commercial stock photo libraries sell it as a definitive historical representation of the plague. So science information that is misused, you probably come across that a lot on your own shows, it's somebody will do a scientific study and it will be misinterpreted and used to promote something else entirely. It's the same with historical textual information that if you're misreading it, you're misrepresenting what people at the time were talking about. But is that really an issue? This is a 14th century image. So what if it's leprosy, not plague? So what if the main man was a bishop, not a priest? So what if the clerics weren't monks? You know, so what? What's the problem here? For historians, the problem is that people are misrepresenting the past. When I teach history of disease courses, I try and tell the students that you wouldn't take an image of somebody with chickenpox to explain to somebody what the flu is like. There is some speculation that the plague in the 14th century and maybe even during the 15th century might have looked more like this spotted disease. And I have seen some historians pick up on descriptions about all these bodily spots and then say, well, we don't have those spots today. So clearly something else was going on. And these are mostly by historians who tend not to have believed that the plague was the same disease that it is today. So even though now, you know, we have the scientific DNA evidence that it was, then they can point to these images and say, well, These images show that it was not the same. And it's constantly having to correct, but these are not images of the plague. Now, Laurie and her colleagues could have just left it there. But no, these intrepid historians, they wanted to fix the internet. I mean, you approached upwards of 51 websites. How responsive were people? I mean, that's really committed. It is, it is. And I mean, we certainly didn't even bother going to the Pinterest and Flickr sites because that would take us down a rabbit hole that I thought we would never get out of. So we focused really on academic websites, science websites, media websites, um, ones that were specifically meant for information for other people to use. I mean, even the Australian curriculum had it on their website at one point. About half, I would say, wrote back. The rest of them either did not respond at all and still have the images up, or their websites are no longer active. Or I did have a few that wrote back and said that they were aware and that they were using it as a teaching moment. So (laughs) actually having it labeled wrong and then teaching their students what that meant. 
Interesting. Stock photo websites entirely ignored you. They did totally ignore me. And this morning, actually, I went and checked and they all still have it mislabeled for sale. So they don't seem to be paying much attention to fact. They do not. Well, it is the internet. We all know it's full of fake news and misinformation, ripe for misinterpretation. We understand that, don't we? But it's still easy to get swept up by memes on Facebook appearing to tell the truth. But the thing is, as we've heard from Laurie, when fake historical images start doing the rounds, history itself gets rewritten. Here's Ottoman scholar again, Dr Nir Shafir. The people now in the in the market, when I go and ask them, they won't say that they're real. But uh, when I went to the Whipple Museum in Cambridge and asked to see their collection of miniatures depicting Islamic science, they turned out to all be fake. <gasps> wow. And, and you could tell that. Yeah, it was quite clear when you take a look at the documents. Quite a few were painted on 19th century bond notices or things like that. So this is Cambridge University's Whipple Museum of the History mm-hmm. of Science. And this is just one example of esteemed museums in the West, Oxford's History of Science Museum, the Wellcome Library, the British Library. Any number of institutions have these miniatures in them. When you went to the Whipple, yeah. Whipple uh, Museum, what was revealed to you about how they procured those images? Well, one of the things I found out is that museums want to show images of Islamic science to the public, right? to educate the public. There's not that many images going around. And so when someone comes and wants to sell them these images, they jump on it. They were sold to them by a dealer in Istanbul in the late 90s. Quite a few of these were quite high quality. So they thought it was uh, back then a worthwhile investment. Let's explore why you think these fakes exist. Where does this Mm -hmm. desire come from to make up fake scenes from the history of Islamic science? Is it Is it about more than simply artistic licence and and making a buck out of tourists? Yeah, this isn't a story about necessarily the forgers, but about why we want to believe in these forgeries. So since the late 19th century, there has been this narrative about science as a measure of civilization, about science as a way to say whether these people are a part of the human race or the human political community. And... um, even in 1883, Ernst Renan, this famous scholar of Islam, was arguing that Islam, because of its religiosity, had turned against science and rationality. And of course, there was a response to this by a number of scholars at the time. So this is a long-standing debate. What people want to do is essentially quickly and easily use images of science, especially the ones we recognize as modern, you know, people using instruments, people looking at the night sky through telescopes to demonstrate that Muslims had science too. And of course they do. There's actually amazing and long-standing examples of Islamic science. Everything from, let's say, medical books from medieval Baghdad to uh, calendars that people were using for astrological or astronomical calculations in, I don't know, 17th century Istanbul. But it's often just not visually depicted in the way we want it to today. And this has become even more pressing in the past 10 to 20 years in the face of increasing Islamophobia, which has essentially argued that, you know, Muslims aren't part of whatever Western civilization, part of our culture, part of our political community, and shouldn't be part of it. And so in response to that, 
kind of discourse, this Islamophobic discourse, there has been an increasingly well-intentioned, if misplaced desire, to show that, no, you know, Muslims also had science and that uh, we can create a sort of global political uh, human community by showing the past history of Islamic uh, scientific production. Now, in critiquing these forgeries, these fake representations of the history of Islamic science in these miniatures, you walk a very fine line, don't you? Because... On the other hand, you also want to investigate and celebrate what you perceive to be a rich history of Islamic science. And yet what mm-hmm. you might be putting out there is the message that it's all fake. Right. Um, and in yes, fact, you've had a very was... interesting response, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. One of the things I found out is a few weeks after this article was released, that it was actually picked up by Islamophobic right-wing commentators who essentially took the introduction of the article Uh, added a few lines of their own and basically said that look muslims never had science everything out uh, everything in these collections is fake and in reality islam is irrational it's against science and things like that and it's this big liberal conspiracy to pretend that we have to live in this multicultural world how does it make you feel your argument being co-opted by islamophobes I was utterly disgusted. I was surprised. You know, I I never had actually expected this to happen. And there's an irony here because and half of my work is about how meaning and nuance and and history gets uh, mistranslated once it gets on the internet and circulates in different ways. And here it, it was happening to my very own work. Just like how these fake miniatures jump around as tourist curios to stock photos to being on the internet and then end up on scholarly books for the wrong purposes. You know, my work was now being uh, used by these Islamophobic people to basically denounce Muslims. The incredible unintended consequences, and it all started with a fake miniature. Mir Shafir wants a more nuanced approach to how we explore the history of science, one that doesn't just focus on the boys with their toys, those imagined scenes of men wielding telescopes and other scientific instruments. We're moving away from thinking about science as happening just in the minds of great men. You know, the traditional example of, you know, Newton sitting under an apple tree and then the apple falls on him and he, voila, and he thinks of this, you know, theory of gravity. To seeing science being created in the work of artisans, of of daily people, let's say an imam trying to calculate prayer times, or an alchemist uh, trying to figure out how to turn lead into gold. And it's in these daily experimentations in the world of also trade and things like that, that we find science being created. And that's, I think, what a lot of us, myself and my colleagues, are trying to do today. Your sense is that science was, in fact, everywhere possibly, Mm -hmm. in the Ottoman Empire, not in the kind of places that we recognise as being scientific now. Right. Let's say this is something that a lot of us uh, in the history of science have been arguing about, this finding science in the everyday, in everyday practices. And the problem is is that it's often quite difficult to recognise this sort of science. Everyday science is not as spectacular. It's not depicted visually in the same way that we that we need for for our image obsessed society today it's not going to change the internet because the pictures are still there but i've had quite a few people write to me separately saying i i have a book in in publication right now and i have this image in it and i'm going to write to my publisher right now and get it taken out so 
and I do get some pleasure when I'm at conferences and I see people with the image and I'm going, um, that is not the plague. <laughs> the history police. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I have to be careful not to go down that road. <laughs> I mean, in fact, some websites have replaced the image, but I think there was one that actually replaced it with another incorrect image representation they of the plague. They did. Yes, yes. And when I wrote to correct them, they were actually quite rude to me. <laughs> What's your cautionary word, your cautionary instruction to all of us after this experience? I think the best answer to that came from one of the students that I had in a course that I taught this summer about the plague. And at the very last class, we talked about, so what have you learned? What would you do differently now that you know more about the plague? And one of the students actually said to me, what I've learned is that I cannot take for granted anything that I read or that I see. I need to go back to the original source as much as possible because somebody might have misinterpreted it. Sage advice there from Professor Laurie Jones from the University of Ottawa and uh, thanks also to Assistant History Professor Nir Shafir from the University of California, San Diego, a popular show there from our archive. And don't forget, there is a wealth of science friction in our archive. Podcasts to catch up with. I know you're probably already a subscriber, but tell your friends if they aren't. Thanks to co-producer Jane Lee. I'm on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Come say hi. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.